Welcome to the FASD Success Show, the only podcast where you can get real-world information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This show will help you create calm in the chaos, have hope for the future, and more importantly, save your sanity so you don't lose your flipping mind. Now, here's your host, caregiver turned world FASD educator, Jeff Noble. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number three. 23 of the FASD show. I'm your host, Jeff Noble. Thank you so much for being with me on this day. I hope you're doing well. I hope you are maintaining sanity. I hope wherever you are, there's some nice weather, less meltdowns, all the good stuff. Uh, This is the FASD success show. This is the show where we try to present so much FASD success that you believe it yourself. And then once you believe it yourself, you'll be able to make it happen for yourself, your loved ones on the spectrum, kids clients, students, everybody. So at the time of this recording, it is a pretty interesting time, especially if you live in North America. Um, I am from Canada, uh, so I am seeing our neighbors to the south go through some very difficult times right now. So if you are listening uh, from the States and you are dealing uh, with the riots that are going on right now, please stay safe. Uh, safety first. It is the number one success factor in my boat. Uh, we want to make sure that you are uh, safe. So I hope you're listening to this in a safe space. Maybe you're running. Maybe you're walking. Maybe you're gardening because gardening certainly is pretty awesome. And maybe you are just doing nothing and you're sitting here listening to me trying to keep your shit together. Whatever it is, I'm glad you're here. And today is an excellent show for you to be here because today we're talking to Barb Clark. Uh, Now, Barb is an amazing lady and I have been so lucky and fortunate, you know, to travel all over the world and meet people. And I had met Barb when I did to talk in Minnesota. Uh, And I'll tell you, the people in Minnesota are uber nice. In fact, I think they should be an extra province. I would definitely uh, make a trade for them somehow for the state to become Canadians because they are so cool Uh, and welcoming. And of course, once you get to talking to people and you see what they've been through and then you become Facebook friends. And I started to see everything that Barb was involved with, with FASD. And then I read this article that she wrote called Got Rage. And I said, I have to talk to her about the podcast. And of course, she also is one of the uh, guest expert insiders whenever I do my online course, The Caregiver Kickstart. So today, what we're going to be talking about is a a few things. Uh, The one thing we're going to be talking about is, of course, you know, Barb's journey into the FASD arena, having adopted uh, a daughter and other kids, but her daughter is the one on the spectrum having to go through dealing with all of the stuff she dealt with as a parent who didn't have any information, who was given wrong information, who was using the the wrong parenting techniques that actually made things worse. And I I really appreciate the fact that she was so forthcoming and just shared all of that stuff uh, so you could learn from her mistakes to shorten the learning curve. All the way to making the decision of putting her uh, daughter into a group home placement and dealing with the guilt and how to parent in that situation. And then we talk about her actual article, Got Rage, and she gives some do's and don'ts because that is, if not, you know, 
one of the hardest things to deal with uh, when caring for an individual on with fetal alcohol is the the rage, is the tantrum, is the meltdown. And I have sat through a f- quite a few of them, not only being a caregiver, uh, but also having uh, family members who I am pretty sure who are on the spectrum as well. So I get it. I get it when I get that uneasy feeling uh, in your stomach. I get, you know, the needing to calm and breathe and uh, uh, protect other people in the house and uh, just the exhausting nature that a meltdown occurs. And I get it, like having the frayed nerves. So I I know what you're going through. Barb certainly knows what you're going through. And she's going to tell an amazing story, uh, an amazing story about how she came to write the article. Because, of course, the insight about how she dealt with meltdowns came from another individual on the spectrum. And isn't that how it works? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, they are the experts. Individuals with FASD are the absolute experts experts of this you know i'm just the messenger maybe a, a bit of an insider uh, it's almost like in sports how let's say because hockey right canada i love hockey like the hockey player is the actual expert on the game and the media members the analysts are just like the insiders right they have inside info but they're not as the experts as the folks who are in the arena playing the game just like uh individual with FASD and it is it's not a game you know this is a real life uh, life and death Uh, there's there's a lot that goes on uh, with uh, meltdowns and so she lays it out and I really appreciate uh, what she did so I really think that uh, you're going to enjoy it and also if you're enjoying the podcast in general whether this is your first episode or your 23rd episode uh, it Please subscribe to the show. Subscribe, uh, follow, however it is that you listen to on the podcast. Uh, uh, if it's a like, f- subscribe, a follow, whatever it is. And then every brand new episode that we do, as soon as it drops, it goes right to your smartphone, tablet, wherever it is. And you could just consume it and get all of this excellent inside information, especially from this girl, I'm telling you. Like, uh, before we get to the interview, let me tell you who she is. So, Barb, Barb Clark attended the University of Minnesota and graduated with a BIS in Youth Studies, Sociology, and English. She has spent over 25 years working uh, with an at-risk youth in public schools and the nonprofit sector. Barb and her husband are the parents of four adopted children, the oldest of which is diagnosed with FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Barb also currently works at the North American Council on Adoptive Children, NACAC, coordinating a program uh, to train parents, leaders to provide post-adoption support in their communities and providing post-adoption support to Minnesota families. She also provides training and consulting with schools, agencies, and families to improve the education and lives of young people who were prenatal exposed to drugs and alcohol and are either diagnosed or suspected of having FASD. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, get your pens, your papers. You're going to want to listen to this over and over again. She is awesome. Let's go to the interview with Barb Clark. Elizgu. And here she is, everybody. Barb Clark. Barb, thank you so much for joining the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Well, especially in these times, at the time of this recording, it seems like you're from uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, right? Yes, I am. I live in Minneapolis. And the riots literally in your backyard are happening. Yeah, about a mile away from me, there were some last night, you know, the night I live in North Minneapolis, and um, generally we're the toughest neighborhood. But right now, the kind of epicenter has been in South Minneapolis, but um, it did spread to our neighborhood here as well last night. So it's pretty, um, it's pretty um, heavy, heavy time right now in our world. How how are you explaining that to the kids? Are are they old enough to kind of get it? Or yeah, my kids are seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, and so um, they all are African American. So this definitely is something that is um, hitting them pretty hard. So we're having a lot of open conversations about it. We've had a lot of tears, um, anger. You know, there's a, a whole range of emotions that they've been kind of feeling throughout the whole week. So it's um, you know it'll continue to be hard, but. Um, I do believe, you know, our Minneapolis community is a really strong, amazing place to live. And I think that um, we will get through this. Obviously, I know we'll get through it, but it's going to be it's going to take some time. A lot of healing needs to happen. And stack that onto what's already going on with the with with COVID, right? Yeah, Um, exactly. It's trauma upon trauma, layers of trauma right now. You know, when I was reading your bio, it says you work for the North America Council on Adoptable Children. Nanak, right? Nakak. Nakak. <laughs> Especially with the accent, Nakak. It sounds yeah. great, right? Straight up, uh, yeah. straight up uh, Fargo. Uh, so coordinating. Oh, sorry. So you work with Nakak. Yes. And what do you do there? So I am a parent support and training specialist. So I, I do a couple of different things there. I do um, some, some of my hours each week are supporting um, Minnesota adoptive foster and kinship families. And then I also help lead up kind of the, our training department and the training that we're, that we do around Canada and the United States, um, on a variety of topics, um, that impact people within the child welfare system. And with that, you also, is it on the side you do FASD training? Like, Yes, I also do um, have kind of my own FASD consulting work that I do on the side. So I do um, a lot of training. Um, Most of that tends to be in Minnesota. The national or North American work that I do is usually with NACAC. But in Minnesota, I do a lot of training for schools and counties and families and organizations. And then also some consulting with some schools. helping them out with some, you know, certain students and that kind of stuff. You, um, I had the pleasure of visiting Minnesota, I think on a tour, I think, wait, there was a conference, then a tour. And I just remember how nice you guys were to me. I was like, these guys need to be another province of Canada because (laughs) every time I'm there, like, honestly, uh, it's kind of interchangeable. You guys are the American Canadians. I'll tell you that. Yeah, we are. We're we're a bordering neighbor to you guys. So we're very much very similar to Canada. We've got our strong Norwegian accents, don't you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Well, yours isn't as heavy, you, you know, yours isn't as heavy but i love minnesota because minnesota loves hockey yeah. and uh, and minnesota uh is proud about their hockey hair if you i'm telling the folks if you're listening to this and you want a good chuckle 
<laughs> all you have to do is go to the Minnesota all um, all high school hockey hair team, and it's like a competition. It's as big as like the high school tournament itself is massive on a, on a state scale, but now the haircuts are almost just as important, and yeah. they're they're brilliant. It's a big thing. They make a video every year of it. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it is awesome. Now. Let's get into how you got into uh, FASD, the FASD arena, teaching, training, uh, because you, uh, Barb Clark, are also a caregiver to an individual on the spectrum, correct? Yes, I am. Yes. I, um, you know, my first career path um, out of college when I was a young adult was working with at-risk teenagers, at-risk youth. Um, I worked for different for school districts and nonprofits doing um, youth leadership support and training. And then um, and then about 20 years ago, 21 years ago, um, my husband and I started our family through adoption and um, and we adopted um, and we, we did infant private adoptions here in America. And so every year in a row, we just got a new baby. Um, and so our oldest daughter, Akila, is she'll be 21 in August. So she's 20 right now. And um, we didn't know a whole lot about fetal alcohol at the time. We knew very little. Um, but so she was about six years of age when she was diagnosed with an FASD. And it kind of, um, you know, right when she started to walk and talk, I knew something was a little bit different and a little bit off and quirky and that kind of stuff. But um, most of the professionals told me I was paranoid. Because she was developmentally online. She, you know, she walked, she talked, she rolled over, she did all of the developmental stuff when you're supposed right. to. She was just very spirited, <laughs> very spirited. And they told me to get that book for the spirited child. And I threw that away because nothing worked. Right. Um, anyways, it was, she was six when she was finally diagnosed. So then, um, you know, trying to learn. And again, this was 20 years or, you know, well, would have been, um, 14 years ago or so when she was diagnosed. And um, I knew a, very, a little bit about it, but very little. And what I knew was actually old, you know, out of date information. So I dove into trying to learn as much as I could. And that took me several years to really, and I'm still, you know, still don't know it all, still working <laughs> on yep. learning more about it. Absolutely. Yeah. The more I know about FASD, the more I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's a fickle mistress in that way, uh, in a good way too, because we're learning so much about the disability as right. well. Yep. Uh, so there's also new information, but a diagnosis at six. Yep. Um, and I just want to spend a little time on that. What was what was the upbringing like? Like, what was the family dynamic like? So you had a diagnosis, and what did you think the support heavens would open up? Yeah, you know, you, yeah, you kind of think so. And you kind of, I remember thinking, well, okay, at least now we know kind of what's going on because everything that they had su suggested before that didn't seem to fit properly. And, um, and I'm like, now we can get the help that we need, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and then that help that we needed was very, very hard to find, you know, it still currently is hard to find, but back then, and even prior to that, it was even more difficult to find the right support. And we were running into a lot of professionals who were giving us advice that was not helpful. And that was actually causing further, um, damage to our relationship and connection and all of that kind of stuff. So it was, um, you know, it's hard. She was um, just one of those just really high needs, high attention seeking kids. She had an average IQ, had some learning disabilities, but um, 
she was she was just um you know she just needed an awful lot of attention and we, and she was the oldest of four so and at that point you know when she was 6 when she was first diagnosed they were 6 5 4 and mm-hmm. 3 um and so the kids were pretty little and uh it was you know pretty hard to handle some of the chaos with her um but you know there also was a lot of stuff that you know she also has always had a really fun personality i mean she's a super cool individual with a great sense of humor and um but what we started to see was that every single year as she was getting older things were getting harder um even even kind of considering all of the different interventions and therapies and strategies and things that we were trying to do things were getting harder right as she get as she got older yeah. what were what was if if you don't mind me asking what were some of the hard things like you know um well you know one of the things too and what we eventually learned was that um the most effective intervention was my husband and I starting to change our approach and response to her sure um, that that by far was and that took us a, several years to finally figure out um, and I wish I had known that and been told that when she was at a much younger age. So it would have um, saved us a lot of energy and frustration. Um, but, you know, you know, hindsight's always, always helpful. For sure. But so you, you... The behaviors um, for her, you know, she just would never learn from a consequence. Like when you've got a toddler or a preschooler or an early elementary age child, when they're, you know, it's a lot of the behaviors she was doing are things that can be fairly typical for that age group. Um, but, uh, but the consequence would not impact her and that wasn't typical. And so, um, you know, so she was very just, uh, spirited. She would do like bizarre things. Um, when she's playing with other kids, she would just do bizarre things. And, you know, the other kids in the neighborhood kind of didn't like playing with her and, um, everything was all, and it still currently is kind of like this. It's everything is about her. It's what she wants to do in the moment. And, um, and so, you know, she started eventually struggling with peer relationships when she was quite young, it worked better. But as she got into third, fourth, fifth grade, peers started kind of Mm -hmm. backing away from her and didn't enjoy hanging out with her. And, you know, we were trying to do different social skill interventions with her and the school was too, you know, she was on an IEP right away in kindergarten and, um, and the stuff wasn't helping. And she, uh, so as she was getting older, too, um, she would start to have tantrums or explosive behaviors. And, um, and at, you know, each year that she was getting older, those explosive behaviors became more challenging. So yeah, because part- now they're there, it's challenging on many fronts. It's challenging on our own health. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the we're tricking our own fight or flight. Yes. Uh, you know, it's uh, pounding like our grief and loss because you know we this is not what we thought we signed up for, right? When, right. when you had her, yeah. Uh, and you're trying your hardest, and it sounded like not only were you the school. Like everybody was was really trying. And then you have the safety of your other family members to consider as well. Yep. Just to think that all these years you were given the wrong information, the wrong therapy. So I'm guessing like behavior modification and, you know, all the stuff that individuals have trouble trouble with. Yes. And so it made things worse relationship wise because of the fighting. 
Yep. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, mm-hmm. like I said, it took my husband and I, um, you know, much longer than we would have preferred to figure out that we needed to do things differently with her. And um, and then what starts to happen then is, you know, just the relationship and the attachment and that kind of stuff can start to get a little bit messy. Um, and so uh, that's that, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate nowadays about spreading um, information about fetal alcohol and helping families and caregivers know, um, you know, to stop doing things um, like, the, you know, the way that most of us were parented is not going to work for the children that we're caring for. And, um, and it's just going to cause so much frustration. So I'm really passionate about trying to help people understand that because we did, you know, we did some things, we did some parenting techniques that were not good and that were actually causing her more trauma. Right. That's but you're thinking you're doing good. Yes. Yeah, like you're yeah, trying are. like that's your intentions are so pure yep. and little do you know that it's it's causing harm. Yeah, and, we, we were these amazing strict parents who mm-hmm. because of our awesome skills and strictness and consistency and all of that kind of stuff um you know she, we're going to teach this out of her. <laughs> you know, right. and then right. eventually here's, here's where, here's what the bummer is. And this is what yeah. I wish that had happened to us earlier when we were starting to understand the diagnosis is I wish people had started to um, point out the brain aspect of it more. Um, Cause we were just thinking, we weren't really thinking about it from a deeper perspective of why does she keep doing these things? We knew she had fetal alcohol, but we weren't looking at it as a brain injury or something that was really impacting her brain at the level that it was. And when we started to um, have different people who were teaching us or, you know, we, we went to some trainings eventually um, when we were starting to be, when they were explaining to us the brain and how it functions and why, why our kids are so inconsistent, for example, because of the corpus callosum damage. And, you know, mm-hmm. like when, when, when they started to give us that and they were making it more concrete for us, that was helpful. Just like for our kids with fetal alcohol, we need to make things concrete. Um, I feel like we need to kind of get concrete with the parents to help them understand how the brain does function for our, our kids and adults with fetal alcohol. You mentioned a couple of times you wish you had known earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did so was that followed with guilt what was the feeling about behind yeah, that there's, there's a lot of guilt that comes from things that um you know some of the choices or things like that that you did i don't know if i've ever told you the story of how um one of the things that my daughter consistently has had issues with since age two was stealing and um my first memory was her stealing in the church nursery when she was two years of age. And that's a typical developmental stage for a toddler to do because they don't fully understand ownership yet, which is quite abstract. So right. it would give a consequence and, um, you know, and if, and expect her to learn from it. And that never worked. And so, um, you know, neurotypical children without a huge trauma history are going to learn if we're giving them the consequences and teaching them that, but it didn't work for our daughter. And so, um, you know, so when she was six years old, that's actually what led to her diagnosis is um, we were getting really fed up with the stealing. And now she was in first grade and she was stealing at school all the time and her stealing would go in phases where she would steal 
for three weeks straight every day and then not for two weeks and then steal for five. It was all over. And the, you know, the professionals and the therapists were telling us to chart it and figure out what the triggers were and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And we even looked at moon phases. And, oh, moon phases. Yeah. That a girl. Yeah. Hey, we were desperate. We yeah. couldn't find any pattern to it. And so um, my husband and I, though, were starting to get uh, really annoyed about it because it was making us look like bad parents. Right. And that's, we were really yeah. stuck on that back in those days and what our, um, you know, what our reputation was at the school. Sure. And so, um, so we, my husband and I decided we were going to get hardcore. And after three days of stealing in a row at school, we sat down with her and we, you know, we talked about stealing, which we did every time. And she always said, okay, mom, okay, dad, I'm sorry. I understand it. I won't do it again. And um, I used to think that she was being manipulative when she would say that. Ah, And then eventually I realized, no, she honestly thinks she is not going to steal again. She really truly believes and thinks she can stop. And, um, and so, uh, we sat down with her and we talked with her about it and we told her that, um, if she steals again, we're going to throw away her blankie. So she had her little baby blankie that she was addicted to just like Linus from, um, Charlie Brown show. And, uh, so she, you know, she said, okay, she understood the consequences. We went to bed that night. I always joke and my husband and I were, you know, high-fiving each other thinking we're such awesome strict parents. None of our friends would do this. All of our friends are wussy and don't follow through on the hard consequences that they threaten and blah, blah, blah. And we would. So anyways, um, uh, of course the next day she steals again. So we had this super traumatic throwing away of the blankie ceremony with all four of the kids, you know, out by the trash. Can. Right, right, right. And we're pointing our fingers and we've got our serious voice and we're lecturing her, lecturing her and giving her heck. And all four of the kids are sobbing. Right? <laughs> yeah. The other ones are holding their blankies for dear life, scared. So then um, we went to bed that night and, um, and I say we went to bed. We didn't go to sleep because there was no sleep to be had because the blankie was gone. And so her sleep, which was already not, um, mm-hmm. not good sleep patterns became even worse because she didn't have her calming sensory item. We didn't know anything about sensory processing disorders back in those days either. And so, um, nor were we trauma informed, which I think are any family, um, that are parenting a child with fetal alcohol need to be trauma informed because fetal alcohol is one of the very first forms of trauma that people right. experience is in utero trauma. So, um, Anyway, she, um, so we had the ceremony, we threw away the blanket, we couldn't sleep, but my husband and I, when we tried to go to sleep, we're now we're giving each other a high 10 because we think we're super awesome because we actually followed through on the consequence and all that junk. And of course, the next day she stole again. And I went straight back to the school and, um, and I had a list of all the different consequences or sticker charts and different, you know, social stories, everything mm-hmm. that we had tried. And I went into the school psychologist who had been giving me social stories to use even. And, um, and I said, here's everything we've tried. Nothing has worked. I don't know what else to do. I'm at a loss. And she goes, wow, I don't know what to tell you, Barb. We don't normally see this unless it's a kid in a homeless shelter. And I was like, okay, thanks for your help. And I went home and I got on Google and I started Googling phrases about childhood theft, kids stealing, all that. And I came to a website on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And I can still remember the room I was sitting in in our house while I was looking at this computer and looking at all of the list of the 
the behaviors right. and the symptoms of this. Cause, and I'm like, Holy cow, she almost has every single one. And again, you know, this, um, she was born in 99 and 96 is when it, you know, this became a spectrum disorder. And when they started to recognize that there's this in the invisible aspect of, um, alcohol related neurodevelopmental mm-hmm. disorder, um, and so um, I knew right away that she had it when I was reading this website and starting to understand it because we we had confirmation of alcohol exposure um, in the paperwork. Even we just didn't think that she fit it because we thought we only knew about fetal alcohol syndrome and, and the, the face features and all of that. Right. Stuff, and we knew, and she was also very, you know she's also very bright, and so it just didn't didn't fit. That's that's the. That's the hardest part of this is that she was also warm and mm-hmm. funny and exactly. cool. So if you're like, yes, you know, and could talk, probably talk very well, very articulate. Exactly. So you're thinking like, you know what you're doing. Yep. Right. Yep. You're yep. This is willful, purposeful, yes. intentional. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And, and then that whole inconsistent thing, too, because of the corpus callosum damage that most of these individuals have, they might actually one day be able to control that impulse to not steal or whatever the whatever the yep. behavior is. And then the next day they don't or the next minute even. And so and yeah. that's boggling to most neurotypical adult brains. <laughs> We're like, what? this? And that's why we go to that. We, we assume that it's manipulation. And, and what Barb is talking about, the corpus callosum, is the network. Uh, so the right and left hemisphere of the brain can communicate. And often with individuals uh, that could uh, be impaired, even slightly. Like, you know, I talked to Dr. Uh, Catherine LaBelle, who does the MRIs on that. And right. often, you know, she says an MRI is mainly useless unless it's grouped yeah. together for to study big groups with minute details because you can't right. see it. So, yes. you know, you can't even see it. My gosh, I can only imagine. Also, you have to give attention to the other kids and you still are being a wife and you're still being a professional and, 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 and. Yep, exactly. Oh. Yeah. So what was the decision uh, for Aquila for a, a placement? Well, so eventually, um, you know, we did start to figure out how to parent her differently and and, and that definitely helped calm things down a little bit but um but even still with um with us parenting differently and um a lot of different interventions including medication and things like that um her behavior still um continued to escalate every year and um by the time she was about uh 13, 12 or 13 years of age, it was just getting really dangerous. It wasn't safe. Um, her raging um, was pretty much on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And uh, the other three kids, um, again, who are all just one year apart um, below her, were all were starting to get quite traumatized by the whole thing. And um, so eventually we worked with our county system here in Minneapolis and um we were, you know, again, they were providing some higher level of interventions even. And then at one point it was finally clear to all of us that it just wasn't safe for her to remain in the home, which was uh, an excruciating decision to come to. And um, we, I have to say, we're really fortunate because the majority of families that I've worked with, whether here in Minnesota or around the country or in Canada, even who I hear from, are, you know, struggling um, to try to get the right kind of intervention and supports for their kids that are that have the level of aggression that my daughter has. 
but um, so so she was the county. They have a they have what's called an out of home placement screening committee, and they actually looked at all of the paperwork and all of this er- interventions we had tried, and they agreed that um, that she wasn't safe. And so they first made the choice of a residential treatment center setting. So she went to that for ten and a half months, and their whole their hope with that was to have you know with the high level of supervision there. They wanted them to kind of watch to give a recommendation for what what would be best for her next after her time there. You know, could she go back home or what type of community placement would be a good um, setup for her? And so at the end of her 10 and a half months there, it was decided by um, our family and our team and the team at the RTC that a group home placement would be um, in her best interest. And so she was placed then at about 13 in a group home. Right now she's 20, so she has been in the same place for um, seven years. When she was becoming an adult, some of the other girls that were there also were, so they transitioned the license from a child home to an adult home. And, um, you know, it uh, the whole process was um, really painful, really painful, a lot of guilt, a lot of icky emotions that come with yeah. it. But once, um, once we kind of got through that, we actually were able to see that it actually has been better for her. Um, it's been, no. it's you know, there's a higher level of supervision in a group home. It's right. still, I actually, um, for her, the place where she has thrived the most is a residential treatment center because it had even higher level of structure and supervision and support for when she does start to escalate. Um, Whereas in the group home, there's four young women who live there with, you know, between one to three staff, depending on their staffing patterns and that kind of stuff. And so when she does start to escalate there, which she does, um, you know, on a fairly frequent basis, the police were just there last night at her group home um, because of her raging. So, um, but, but there's still, it still is structured differently than our home at the group. And more attention. She She does better there. Now I just want to unpack a little bit of that because you said once we got over that icky part, mm-hmm. how did you do that? Uh, you know, because that for the people listening that yeah. might be in, you've been through all these stages. How did you get through them? Like, you know, what did you uh, tell yourself to get over? Like you said, you felt guilty. Yeah. How did you, you know, um, I'll, I'll have to say the most helpful thing for me throughout this entire process has been connecting with other caregivers who have lived similar lives or are, you know, living similar lives. And so, um, so talking with, you know, getting together with friends, you know, other friends who had, you know, kids with fetal alcohol and talking with them and my husband and I, you know, talking through it a ton too, but talking with other families who are, who knew our situation well enough and were were able to say, you did the right thing. You had, you know, you had, you kind of had no choice. Like your family was on the point of breaking down. And that's what I see in so many of the families that I'm working with that probably have kids who do need out of home placement. I see marriages being um, stressed at a really high level um, and then, and relationships with the other children becoming impacted and all of that kind of the children resenting the other kid. Exactly. Thing was talking to other parents and helping them help me work through some of those feelings of guilt and all of that kind of stuff. And then getting really serious about self-care. You know, by the time, 
you know, by the time that Akila did go out of home, um, you know, my body was breaking down. I, you know, I have significant back yeah. issues now from all of the rages and restraints. Um, I had hum- like ridiculous amounts of migraines all the time back then. And eventually was like, okay, I have to do better at taking care of myself yeah. and finding things like, you know, I started doing, um, a lot of bike riding or just different things like that, where I would have space where I could clear my head on my own. Um, I, I found once I transferred from being a foster parent, it took me like six months. Mm-hmm. I was always like on edge. Yes. You know, especially when he called. Yeah. Uh, it took a while to get, even though he wasn't around, yeah. nothing was happening. Even yeah. though safe and he was safe it did it took me and that was only a couple of years so i could yeah. imagine uh compounding that and just everything else weighing on you and, and it weighs on a lot of parents and still parents who uh who are listening to this right now now you know in this case uh, um of a uh, group home setting was appropriate it's not always the case right right you also find when parents, some parents do get good training, yep. uh, you know, and they yep. realize the brain things yep. could go. But at the end of the day, all the individuals on the spectrum are totally different. Yes, you compound yep. trauma, multiple yep. placements too, yep. Yep. and you know these foster and adoptive parents uh, are up against it before. And they want the kids so bad, and yes. they didn't have the ability to have their own kids, right? And right. So just the paperwork and the visits to different countries, the, all the stories I've heard them, and, and then to have that happen, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I say that to families all the time. You know, I think it's a small percentage of us who actually have kids that should be in an out of home placement. Um, and, and so I think, you know, and, you know, again, trying to work with the families, there's been many families whom I've worked with, who once they started to have a better understanding of their child's brain and started to parent differently, things simmered down. And um, and the raging was not as frequent and all of that kind of stuff. Now, some of our kids, because of just the way their brains were impaired and mm-hmm. other genetic dispositions and trauma and you know there's so many factors that go into it um some of them their brains are just more on fire than the others and that happens that cortical arousal they call constantly their brain does not stop firing and the the, the wiring you know is is different so that causes different reactions to different environments and it's just not conducive for a family with multiple kids you know because even even the noise level you know sensory processing disorder you know you you had a kid like four five six you know and she's like or three four five and she's six and i have one kid and she's like "Ah!" Ah!" she's having a good time but yes and you put that on an individual who has a hard time with sensory right uh, emotional regulation issues cooker pot boom right oh yeah and i wish i mean i wish i had known too like the the most I, in my opinion the most effective intervention for individuals on the fetal alcohol spectrum is occupational therapy with the sensory mm-hmm. focus mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. it has been the, the thing that i have seen that has made um a bigger you know a really big difference for our kids more so than any of the cognitive or talk therapies that are out there 
our our brains are constantly just trying to regulate themselves mm-hmm. in the given environments they they have. That's right. what the brain's job is. Yep. And if the brain isn't able to uh, meet those sensory needs, yep. input that sensory, it's it's game over, and right. it's uh, it, it's so hard for them. Now, Mike, here's a question: Do you still feel like even maybe when it started that you were still able to parent? uh Akila like from afar that you didn't give up on her like right yes um so she lives 20 minutes from our home and um and I you know it's funny I often will tell families I still um expend more energy parenting her than I do my other three kids who still live at home right and so um absolutely you know I still am mom and my husband is still dad and um, and although we don't have that day to day aggression and all of those challenges, it's still a lot of work and still really stressful. Yeah. So again, last night at eleven o'clock, I'm getting the text from the group home that the police yeah. had just been there, and then throwing that on top of the riots. And I mean, she's in a suburban community, um, uh, you know, um, that is not far from Minneapolis at all, but. Um, the riots are actually spreading out into the suburbs here too. So I'm, you know, just the stress of, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm feeling guilty that she's using, that the police are having to spend their time dealing with her when this kind of chaos is going on. So there's, there's a lot. And then there's emails going on today and we're having to have another meeting with the group home to figure out what we can do to try to keep her from not doing that because the the local police in her community are getting upset because she has, they have the, she has the most phone calls of anybody in that entire community. Please. Where, where do you st- um, still find the gratitude and like the seeing her, like, do you still see past that stuff? Is this old? Yeah. Hat now? Is one this- of, yeah. One of the things that I say about when she went into out of home placement, um, it was, it was almost like the cloud cover kind of went away and we were actually able to see our daughter again because we weren't living in this constant fog of trauma. Yeah. And, um, and we were, and we were able to um, have a better relationship with her. I mean, who would think this, but for us in our situation, our relationship and our attachment with her actually improved greatly after she moved out of the home. And so um you know, we, she's home, you know, once or twice a week. Um, and then I'm often taking her to different appointments or things. Another time we have to, t- we talk on the phone, um, every single day, at least once. <laughs> and, uh, so she's still right there. It's like she went to college, but the college is only she, 20 minutes she away. She talks to me more than my kids who actually live in the house. Talk the, yeah. <laughs> Your kids are in the house texting you, exactly. right? And she's exactly. on the, the phone with you for sure. Uh, with all uh, it's, yeah, it's like she's gone to college, but she's She's done hijinks with the dean against the yeah. dean, right? Like, right. Uh, now, it, but the you know the rages are serious. Uh, the the lots of families, you know, especially my uh, our free closed group for uh, caregivers and frontline workers, facebook.com uh, slash group slash FASD forever. That is, it, uh, rages are a big topic. Yeah. Um, you know, in the podcast a few uh, weeks ago, we had Dr. Uh, Mella. Yes. Talk about the biology of rage, and mm-hmm. but I still want your take because you wrote one of my favorite articles about it, and it's practical. 
Yeah. And and you titled this uh, the title uh, of this is called Got Rage, and you will find this uh, included in the show notes at uh, uh, com slash podcast, and it'll be right in there with, with the show notes. Uh, before we get into it, because you actually say we're going to list the do's and don'ts, yeah. uh, and, and we're going to we're going to talk about this. But where did this? How did the article come about? Well, so for years, um, for several years, I was actually doing respite for teenage boys who have fetal alcohol, and actually. I still am a little bit, although nobody should call me for that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not an advertisement for us. But I yeah, yeah. Actually, have a guy here today, but um, uh, there was this one young man who um, was a senior in high school, and he was um, he was with and uh, when we actually picked up my daughter Akila, two of my other children, we went to a movie one night, and this was a young man who, when he was in like first grade, was like. Um, they were having to evacuate classrooms because he was tearing them apart. Mm-hmm. And he ended up in a setting for special ed school in first grade. So his raging and challenges challenges were really extreme. But by um, something like middle school or ninth grade, for sure, he actually had stopped with the raging. And so um, so he was at my house. We had brought we picked up Akila. We went to a movie. And when we were on the way back to her group home to drop her off, she started to have a car rage. And the rages in the car are no joke. They are not fun. I'm sure some of the listeners, many of them probably have had them. Trying to literally leave the car. Yeah. No, she wasn't trying to leave the car, but she was attacking um, me while I was driving. And so I had to pull over into a parking lot and we got out of the car and it was this really chaotic scene of her chasing and using the ice scraper. I always tell the people in like Florida or California, Arizona, I'm like, you guys are lucky you don't have those ice scrapers in your car. They're weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, it was chaotic. It finally, you know, took about 45 minutes, um, got her back in the car, got her dropped off, went home. Everybody went to bed. I kept this young man up and I wanted to process this new level of trauma that he just got to experience on his respite weekend. And um, and uh, and he had a lot of really great insights. He was like, wow, is that what my parents used to have to see and right. deal with? And I was like, yeah. And I'm like, what do you think of that? And he was like, he was cursing a little bit. So anyways, I won't say exactly what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And I said, how did I, how did I do? And he said, you were effing annoying. And I was like, what? Because I, so one of the things that my husband have always prided ourselves in is that we stay really calm while she's escalated. Like we don't yell back. We stay super calm. And that's what we recommend that caregivers do is stay calm when they're escalating because they're always going to one up you. If you're in the red zone, they're going to be higher in the red zone than you are. Yeah. So we were really good at that. So I thought we were good because I could stay calm and I wouldn't yell. And, um, and, and, uh, and I should preface this to say also, I went to as many FASD trainings and conferences and workshops that I could in the, in the, you know, kind of local area here in Minnesota. And at every one of them, I would be the one raising my hand saying, what do we do about the raging? Right. And everybody would, and then these various professionals would tell me to use the sticker charts. And I would tell them nowadays to go stick that sticker chart somewhere where the sun doesn't shine. Right. You can stay up your ass because it's a podcast. <laughs> yeah. We're not big fans of sticker charts as parents of, um, of kids like these. So anyways, um, 
so he said I was, you know, this young man said I was annoying. And I said, well, what did I do that was annoying? And he said, well, you kept telling her to calm down. And it really pisses me off when my parents tell me to calm down. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, if my husband and I are in an argument and I'm upset about something and he tells me to calm down, uh, it is infuriating. It's very condescending. So when somebody is upset about something and we say that it doesn't work. And then I, you know, one of my favorite quotes or sayings is never in the history of calming down. Has anyone ever calmed down by being told to calm down? That's right. So, so I was like, right on. Dude, that's a really good point. Okay, thanks. And then he said, I also repeated her name a lot, which irritates him. I thought about that again. So if my husband and I are two feet away from each other or six feet away from each other, having a heated discussion and we're upset about something or I'm upset. And if he says, Barb, that's that does come off as condescending. Yeah. And if you said it more than once, it really would. And so um, I'm like, okay, that's also an excellent point, you know. And so anyways, just talking with this young man, he and so he, he pointed out so much to me that I had never actually sat and thought about. And so I, you know, over the next um, couple of months, I sat and processed that more and started thinking a little bit more deeply about what is going on with an individual when they are in the red zone internally and started to think about the level of anxiety that they have and how, you know, their brain is a human firing right and they can't even remember what the story facts were and all of this stuff and all of these things that we were just doing wrong. So I realized also um, a lot of times what families or caregivers will do is point if the child is threatening or cursing, um, will say something like that language isn't acceptable or you can't threaten or that's not safe or whatever. Whereas um, it's just not the time. Their brain is not in a learning space at the moment. So this is not the time to have a lesson about cursing or to tell them to go put a quarter in the cursing jar or whatever. Right. When their brain's on fire, none of that stuff is going to matter. It's um, true. And Before then, you go forward, because I want to make sure we're okay. saying number one, number two, number three. Okay. Right. I want to even read your intro just in case you guys don't read it. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, and we're going to go over a couple of these points again, but it's key. Uh, so this is what she says. And we're, you know, I'm reading the author's article as we speak. I'll try not to butcher it. Many families are struggling with their children who struggle with aggressive behaviors. Very true. One of the toughest things to deal with when a parenting children who have in utero or out of utero trauma, in particular children who have FASD, thankfully not all children with FASD have aggressive behaviors, but some do. There are not a lot of great strategies on how to stop the rage uh, other than the obvious ones that most have tried the distraction, uh, redirection, calming. But there are several things that most of us parents do instinctively, and most of them are the exact opposite of what we should be, what is helpful during an escalation. Uh, you need to fight uh, all or most of your instincts when a child is starting to go into the red zone. How do you do that? You know, you've got to find some kind of inner calm in you, a way that you can keep yourself calm. One of the things that I will start saying over and over inside my head, I don't say it out loud, I, I'm inside my head, I will I will remind myself brain injury, brain injury, brain damage, you know, whatever it is yeah. that works for you. One of my um, 
one of my families will say she has no arms, she has no arms inside, like trying to see a physical disability or something oh, like that. It's like the mantra, right? Yeah, totally, you know, totally. Yeah, and it, that's that was even brought to light too uh, for another trainer. Her name is Eileen Devine, and she talks about the mantra, and she says hers is "Stay soft, Eileen." Yeah, I think that that's giving her that instruction. Instruction. Mine was uh, brain, not behavior. Brain, not behavior. Yeah. Brain, not behavior. It's brain. It's brain. It's brain. Yeah. So find that mantra exactly. to, to go there and to repeat it. Exactly. That's interesting. You know, she has no arms. Trying to see a physical disability right. because, uh, you know, hard is hard, and having any children, child, uh, or caring for anybody with a a. a you know, and intellectual disability is tough. Uh, but if it was uh, somebody like, let's say, had Down syndrome, you could see it. Yes. So empathy goes up, patience goes way up if, exactly. if, if someone was escalating uh, like that, if you could physically see it. But again, the look normal, the talk normal, and to appear so articulate. Right, exactly. It, it seems to come out of left field. So your sake, which I, I believe is true, uh, is almost like ready yourself. Make sure that you have uh, the mantra. Yep. Uh, okay, so a child is starting to go into the red zone or is in the red zone. This could be a difficult thing to do as it's not only fighting our instincts, but it's also challenging our behavioral patterns we have been doing for a while, likely years. Mm-hmm. So our default mechanism for dealing with these is almost ingrained in our DNA. Right. And so now we're trying to reverse that. Yep. Exactly. And that takes a while. It really does take a while to do because mm. it's not instinctive for most people. There's a few people who it's instinctive for, but most of it's it's not. I used to say, like, what's the big deal? What's wrong with you? Like, that was my... Right. I, I, I obviously know training. I couldn't fathom yeah. why you... I used to say, why are you acting like a baby? Right. I, I Oh, I, yeah. We all said a b- whole bunch of things. You know, you're not acting like an eight-year-old or whatever, you yeah. know. Yeah, my guy was 14 for Pete's sake, you know, and I like you're acting like a kid. And he was like, I come to find out like developmentally. Developmentally, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So instead of getting off topic, because I love to do that below are a few pieces of advice when a child starts to escalate. But often before they get physical, they get verbally aggressive. And sometimes our reactions escalate them to a higher level. Here are the six do's and don'ts. So I know we already covered a follow up. But again, to reiterate, do not tell the child to calm down. Do not tell the child to relax. Uh, it, it's, it is condescending. It is a bit facetious. Yeah. Uh, it's not validating that yep. they are in yep. this state of angst. Unless you're, unless you have some really rare kid out there that that works for. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> you might be the parent that has a kid. I always that get that. <laughs> do you ever do trainings and you get that all the time? Like you'll say math is, you know, numbers are, oh, my kid's the best. I'm at. Okay. Now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not everybody, man. Exactly. Right? Uh, so let's not do that. Uh, you wouldn't want it done to you. Um, you, you know, it's, it doesn't work and, and do not repeat the name over and over. I, was it you who said, um, we, we think our worth, our words are like self-soothing. Like someone mentioned about that. We perceive our words to soothe, but they don't, they actually agitate. Yes. Yes. And even if we're using a calm voice, um, what, you know, what I always talk about too, is that kids with fetal alcohol and adults have, um, most of them have auditory processing issues and they struggle with processing information 
when their brain is online. When their brain is in the red zone and on fire like that, their auditory processing is almost non-existent. And so what we adults often do is we think we're going to talk our way out of this, right? We're going to talk our way out of this. And so we start yap, 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 talk, talk, talk. And um, because what's happening is our own secondary trauma and our own anxiety is kicking in. And so um, so then these kids can't even use the calming strategies that most of them have all learned in tons of therapy. Right. They can't even pull out. Oh, maybe I should go, you know, squeeze a stress ball or whatever, you know, whatever this strategy is. Their brain is too on fire and we're firing so many words at them that they can't calm down to think of one of those strategies. Mm, very true. Uh, here's number three. And one of my favorite pieces of advice that I give everybody, stop talking. Yes. You, you know, my teacher said, shut up. Like that's yep. she said, we talk too much. And you're saying our secondary trauma kicks in as we do not want to be in rageville again. So we try to talk our way out of it. This does not allow for our child's brain to slow down as they are trying to process not only their feelings, but all of our words. Right. Yep. So zip it. Yep, that's exactly the truth. It's, you know, we've we've got to just stop talking. And that's what I do with um, with my daughter. You also have to be prepared. Um, I, I have to warn parents of this because sometimes then the child gets mad that you're not talking mm-hmm. or, um, or that you're not. And because what will happen, like what my daughter will do is she'll be coming at me with some question like, you know, and, and I, like literally the rage has been going on so long now. I don't even know what her question actually is. And I, and she doesn't either. And so years ago, I would sit and say, I don't even know what your question is anymore. And then she'd be like, you do too. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I really don't. And we would just go round and round on that. Or, or she would be asking me a question that I've already answered 47 times in the last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I used to say asked and answered or, you know, well, that's condescending too. And it doesn't work. And it just put her higher into the red zone. And so um, now and so initially, when I was starting some of these strategies that we're talking about today, when she would um, get upset that I wasn't talking, I would say something like I'm waiting for you to be calm, or I'm waiting for you to be respectful. Well, that didn't work either. That actually infuriated infuriated her more. And as I thought about that, I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at her right now. Mm. And, um, and so I'm putting it on her and I'm blaming her and saying, it's your fault if you would get caught, you know, and obviously it, you know, um, it's the brain damage's fault, right? That's what's going on. So then, uh, now what I do is I say, you know what, I'm feeling really stressed and anxious right now. And I'm just trying to keep myself calm. Like, so that's what I'll do. All I can control in those moments is myself. And, and it kind of um, leads to point number four, because at this point, we just want it to stop. Yes. So our usual parenting technique was was to consequence. And you're saying not point out the consequence of the current behavior as this is a perceived as a threat to a child in the red zone. Th- saying things like you miss curfew, so you can't go out tomorrow night or you misbehave. So you don't get your electronics uh, or we won't go to the, ne- the store the next time. Yada, yada, yada like, you know, etc. Etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of these are perceived as threats and are ineffective when a child is in the red zone and actually are counterproductive. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, so that's 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 what all of our parents, most of our parents, not all of them, but the majority of parents in this world, that's what they do. You know, if you're acting a fool or if you're doing whatever, they're going to point out, you know what? Hey, if you do have act like this when we're at Target, I'm not going to bring you to Target. 
you know? So, and, and they perceive that as a threat in the moment and because their brain is just offline and on fire. Now that would work for a neurotypical kid without a trauma history. They'd be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Because they can use their affect regulation. Exactly. Oh, like, so your brain kicks in and says, Oh, yeah. And I tell you that one is almost the hardest one of all the don'ts for me. Like, um, I take my, she has a lot of medical appointments. And so, uh, when we'll be driving back or to or from in the car, she'll start to rage. And I want to say so badly, you know, mom doesn't have to take you to these appointments. The staff can do this or, you know, I just, I, and I have to bite my lip the whole time to not point out this consequence or we actually, a friend of mine and I took her and her boy, my daughter and her boyfriend on a, a four day vacation to Florida in January that did not go very well. There was a whole ton of raging and it took everything in me to not say, I'm never going to take you on a vacation again if you don't stop or, you know, because it's just what it's just what we want to say, but it does not help because we want it to stop. Oh, yes, we do. We just want the behaviors to stop. Like We just want, just give me five minutes of some peace to yes. collect myself. Yes. It's, it, it's, I felt sometimes it was like an artillery barrage. I felt like I was under, that's the best metaphor. Yes. Like it just kept coming. It just and coming. coming. It just yes. did not yep. stop, right? And that's why I said even in, uh, you know, in like World War II, they would take a break so everyone could collect the casualties. Right. Uh, there's not even any of that. It just keeps going and going and going. So you're just focused on, and then your thoughts get real negative yep. and then it could spiral and spin. And that's not good either. Another good one is number five is do not laugh. Oh, yeah. uh, many things a child might say in the heat of the moment are completely ridiculous, but laughing is very disrespectful. Uh, disrespectful. Think about it when your partner or close friend laughs at you during times during an argument. Yes. Uh, and that's, um, it's funny because nowadays, um, I don't, I don't know if it's just, I'm hardened so much to some of the raging, but, um, sometimes, you know, the stuff that she will say can be really funny. One of the times during a raid, she actually picked, grabbed the phone and said she was going to call president Obama to tell him to bring back segregation. So he right. wouldn't have to be by me. <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm just like, oh, and I was actually really impressed that she had such deep thoughts in the moment yeah. of her rage. But it uh, it is really condescending to laugh. And it's hard, you know, so that is important that we don't do that because that is, it, it, even, even though it's good that you're not yelling, laughing right. also is on the opposite side of the spectrum, something that we don't want to do. We're disrespecting and not validating the sheer angst they're in at that moment. Yes, exactly. I don't know if anyone's ever had a panic attack before, but that's to be in a constant state of that. Right. It's, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Right. And we're so going through that to laugh. You're, you're right. Even if we're, we're trying to be calm and yep. we think maybe laughing is calming right. and interjecting some humor like that. Right. Uh, it's a, I know the only difference i know is sometimes i would be humorous just to redirect i would try and get yes. it to think something totally different yes. so i could use humor that way but it's all depends on the uh, the zone of, of regulation where we were at exactly not not to him in a red i'm saying that to him when he's yellow yep. you know i'm trying to get him back down the green so I, i'll do that but it's it, that's why knowing your kid yep. uh and the sixth one of the 
do nots is do not respond to cursing or threatening words from the child. They are in no place to be able to process this and it will only escalate them further. And that is the hardest even for me. My, and it wasn't even a curse word. It was what he said. He would call me a bitch. Mm. And that for me at the time, I'm over it. I'm long over anything of that, that nature now. Yes. Uh, could you go a little bit deeper on that one? Well, you know, when most parents and caregivers, you know, all of us, we all want respect. Our kids want respect. We want respect. And when a child... Um, whether they're, you know, under 18 or above 18 or disrespecting us, um, we can take that, we take that personally. And, um, and so that's one of the things that I just recommend that we have to not do is to not take that personally. Um, my daughter has called me so many odd names and horrific names mm-hmm. and has made tons of threats, yet she also loves me deeply. And I'll tell you, you know, like the next day or 10 minutes after the rage, she's being loving and you know that's her way of saying sorry yeah in a way she's not Mm -hmm. really great at saying sorry some of our kids have better insight and are better able to sit and process some of these but yeah so i you just have to learn you kind of have to get thick skin you know you've got to just kind of thicken up and toughen up and just not let some of that stuff um get at you that was like the great uh phrase i heard from our good buddy rj formanek uh who's an adult on the spectrum he says it might be happening to you but it's not about you exactly exactly it is not about you in that moment and so trying to get um you know i have a family right now that i'm working with who you know their daughter is 13 or 14 and she's in the homeless shelter here in the twin cities and um you know she doesn't want to go home because the grass is always greener somewhere else. And the parents are so hurt by that. And I'm like, Oh, don't, you know, don't, (laughs) Oh dear. Don't worry about how that makes you feel. This isn't, it's not about you right now. It's just about, it always looks better somewhere else. And right now she has tons of freedom. Yeah. But that's so hard because parents give, 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 give their every little cell in their body to these Mm -hmm. individuals and Mm -hmm. to make it feel like it's not worth it or they don't give a damn or the kid doesn't care. Yeah. Is, which is farther from the truth. Yes. You know, they need you. They love you. Um, here, here are a couple uh, of do's. Uh, stop talking too much. I think we talked yeah. about that, right? It's even if we think we're soothing, we, we could be uh, harmful. Uh, unless, we always preface, unless the kid needs that. Right. You know, unless the kid needs to hear your voice. But most often than not, even if it's the most encouraging words, you're the most beautiful person. I love you so much. It's just giving their brain something else to process. It makes it puts more stress and you're just putting, you know, flames on the fire, like gas right. on the fire when you're doing that. Uh, I like here your second one. Every 10 minutes, uh, five to 10 minutes, say a supportive phrase or a question like, how can I help? What do you need from you? Uh, if they curse you out, don't respond. Just wait a while. Repeat it again. Uh, for most of our kids who rage, once uh, they are in the red zone, it is a matter of waiting it out. Uh, uh, all of us easier said than done, but start working on these and they might help. That's probably the most honest phrase in any FASD article I've ever read. Start working on some of these strategies and it might help. Yes. Yes. I'm always very careful in my my wording of that stuff because all of our individuals are so different in how their brains were impacted and depending on what their history is of 
potential trauma other, you know, on top of the fetal alcohol, you just don't know, you know, how it's going to impact them. And a lot of times it's, it's making sure you're safe. The other kids are safe. The household items are safe and they just have to go, you know, go right. through it. You have yeah. to release that energy. Um, and, and the bummer part of it for them. And I've heard too, in, in some cases is, the individuals on the spectrum can't even feel when they're getting to that point of rage and frustration. Right. Yeah. They, they think they're fine and then boom, it just happens. Yeah. It's not like us where, you know, our shoulders get tense, we get tight, we're right. oh, you cute. Like it, we're, that, that talk in our head and we're able to, uh, you know, prevent it, get in front of it. I have to go for a walk. I have to leave the room. I have to do this. And they aren't able to do that. And then they just go boom. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think what has happened so much is because a lot of us caregivers are doing some of those instinctive things that I think we shouldn't be doing. Um, the rage, we make the rages go higher and last longer, very unintentionally, right? We're trying to get, we're trying to get out of that red zone, but we're doing all of these things that actually make us stay in the red zone longer. Um, and yet the distraction stuff that you were talking, that you were mentioning, that's the key. You know, sometimes you're going to be able to just, to distract them when they're in the yellow zone on the way to the red zone. Usually it's by doing goofy, wacky things. Like That's right. Have or come take a look at that. Side of the street, got out of the car and started dancing and, and crammed, jammed their rap music super loud. And I'm this dorky looking white woman dancing in the middle of the street. We, one time he didn't want to come home from, uh, with us cause he had court and his mom was obviously going her separate way and he wanted to go with his mom and he couldn't. Uh, and so what we started doing is he was sitting on a rock and he was not leaving. So we pulled up beside him, rolled down our windows, turned on some music and started playing tic-tac-toe and not paying attention to him and slowly and surely yep. he came over until he's inside our car going, no, no, put the X there, put the X there. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Oh, great. You know, Oh, you yep. did it. I won. And right. Tara was like, Oh, you got me. Right. Hey, do you want to go get something to eat? Okay. And then, right. you but I had uh, um, a strategy for every phase, right. For every stage for uh, what to do for yellow, you know, uh, uh, with the green, yellow, red, whatever color coding that you wanted to do right. uh, on the scale of emotions. But finally, when it was, I said, okay, here we go. We're, we're going to have a big one. So it's make sure safety, you know, and total calm mm -hmm. and, and, you know, uh, don't have nice things, <laughs> right? Like people, because don't get attached to your things. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know what? Once you're able to realize its brain, once you're able to practice, once they, you know, you have less meltdowns in the home, you have more opportunity. And as they grow older to help them identify self strategies yep. for them to soothe and, right. and, and honor those right when, not when it's convenient for you but it, honor those exactly another thing i always like to point out too is that in some of the trauma-informed research that's coming out it's showing that um, kids and adults with the trauma history and i i include fetal alcohol as a trauma um uh it takes them about 24 hours, most of them, not all of them, but it takes sure. a lot of them about 24 hours to physically and emotionally recover from a big explosion or a big rage. Um, neurotypical people without a significant trauma history, it takes about two hours. Yep. And so we're often sitting there when the rage has been over for 30 minutes and we're going to sit and try to process it with the child or the adult. And um, most of the time, they're not in a clear enough brain space that they can do that in any kind of in-depth, impactful way yet. 
I, I agree. And and to uh, piggyback what you were talking about, the OT, once we had him an occupational therapy assessment um, and we were able to create his room as a place for self-soothing, right. self-regulation, right. we no longer had timeouts anymore. We had, we called them brain breaks. Right. And, 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 you know, a lot of times I think, and for him, because he was in so many different placements, it, it was always like, okay, I'm in trouble again. Right. Oh, like just, oh gosh, everything I seem to do, you know, that yeah. secondary trauma that they're, yeah. they're suffering. And so now it's like, okay, we're not getting along. I might be being a bit of a dick. I'd tell him, yeah. let's have a brain break. Right. So he would go upstairs. And I didn't know that when we got the assessment done that he liked lava lamps and those neon strobe light yeah. stuff that would probably send me into a seizure. Right. He, it soothed him. I had no idea. Yeah. Certain swing. And then when he was ready, and one of the biggest things uh, uh, I, I, I tell parents, and I've made this mistake and don't make this mistake, is that when they have settled down a bit, do not say, like, are you ready to come out now? Are you ready to talk now? Are you ready to, you know, act your age now? Yes. Are you are you calm? Yes. You know, because zoop and then okay. right right back we go again right yeah absolutely i always been telling caregivers and families also um i i'm first to acknowledge how hard it is to parent these um mm-hmm. kids and adults um but i'm always like imagine being them how much harder yeah. that even is um just because their brains are just constantly not firing right or on fire or you know just all of the stuff that they're having to struggle with um, is way more intense and extreme than our struggles. How I, I I also say how have you ever been to a different country with a different language and every, sometimes that's that's what they wake up to every yeah. single day and yeah. it's Groundhog Day and yeah. uh, but it's but you know fair is fair for caregivers that's boring as heck and uh, you know it almost seems like sometimes you're just trying to get through you're killing time right uh, but what i'm saying and what you're saying is we promise you it's all for good right like it, it's all for good now before i let you go see it's already an hour see how yep. quick that goes very quick um, before i let you go well i st- still have you you've been through it like you teach it um what if, if you have a caregiver you know even listening right now they're probably listening cleaning they just probably got over rages. They're just, what's like, what's your advice to them uh, like, that you wish maybe you had known as you were telling before, right? Yeah. You know, my biggest advice is to really figure out the developmental age of our kids. Um, you know, when I do um, and get, get as much training and support, get connected with other caregivers. Um, you know, we've got your awesome FASD um, caregiver success page, which is awesome. Did I say that Thanks. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But also find some people in your local community because guaranteed they're there, who, other parents and caregivers. Um, but, you know, we've, uh, but just remembering the developmental age, I do this thing called the developmental quadrant with families where you just split a piece of paper in four and you put the age on the top left, um, their actual age, chronological age on the top right, you put their emotional age, the bottom left, you put their social age in the bottom right, you put their cognitive age. And, um, and so, you know, you figure out the emotional age just based on how do they respond to things? How do they react to things? What kind of TV shows are they watching? You know, my 20 year old watches, um, uh, Caillou, which is mm-hmm. a toddler show. Yeah, I mean, so just things that, you know, figure that out. Then the social age, you figure out like who, 
who do they really connect with the best? Is it their little cousins, you know, the yeah. littler kids in the neighborhoods? And then the cognitive age, you look at their testing and how they've tested, you know, where they're testing at. And then we say you parent to the um, emotional age, right? That's where we're parenting from is that perspective. Uh, and then the social age is what we have to do. We have to provide safety and support around um, peers and relationships in that for that age. And then we advocate in the school system based on what their cognitive age is, because too many schools are trying to teach these kids at a, at a too high level of material, and it's causing extreme anxiety and school issues. So just, you know, understanding the developmental stuff and how one, one moment they might have the emotional age of a six-year-old, and then the next minute it might be at their actual age of 16. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps our, our brains fried and uh, on the edges, how much that changes. But understanding the developmental stuff is huge. You, have, I'm sure, have dealt with, you said your reputation, you were concerned about that. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've dealt with some with some judgment. Yes. Um, you said something we talked last and I've yeah. now taken credit. I credit you, of course. Uh, but you have said if somebody is not, if people aren't calling you an enabler or helicopter parent, you're not doing it right. Yes. I say if they're not judging you, if you're not getting a bunch of criticism from your friends and family and neighbors, then you're not parenting these kids right. Because you're going to get all I've gotten for years now, all that great advice of I need to just give her a whooping or I need to take her cell phone away or I need to this or that or the other thing. And that's because that's how the majority of society parents, but that doesn't work with these kids. And so um, I actually kind of wear it like a badge of honor, all the judgment. And in a lot of the support, support groups that I lead, we'll talk about that once in a while. If things are feeling heavy, I'll stop and say, all right, let's all go around and talk about some of the stupid advice our friends and family have given us or, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, we've got to find ways to find the humor in this as well. Um, what is your hope for uh, Keila for the future? Um, you know, my hope for her is for her to find a job that she's really happy in. And for, um, you know, my, my hope for her is just for her to be content. Um, and I would actually say for the most part, except for when she's raging, she is fairly kind of content. She does, you know, she's been in a relationship with her boyfriend for about two years. And so um, I just hope for her to have um, contentness and to be safe. You know, safety is a big concern that we all have. And you, and you are currently doing uh, trainings with NACAC. NACAC, got it right. NACAC, it's like the Aflac. Aflac. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it's the North American Council on Adoptable Children. And um, our website is www.nacac.org. My email is Barb Clark. There's no E on Clark. Barb Clark at nacac.org. Um, people can email me if they're looking for yeah. training opportunities or things like that. We're doing a lot of online ones right now. Normally, as you know, Jeff, you and I are mm-hmm. traveling all over doing yes, training. Ma'am. Yes, ma'am. But, but in front of the screens, but hopefully that'll come back someday, the in-person. Uh, and I think it will. I've been taking calls. Uh, people are having to plan for it because yep. of their funding and their yep. budgeting. And so exactly. I personally think... 
next year is is more along the lines of where it's going to go but yes you know your city's on fire and you're dealing with that still and uh but i will say this man uh your openness uh your willingness to share your story is not only inspiring but uh people could tell by just listening to you if if this even if this wasn't being recorded you're you're still cool like this uh and and i just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing. It's going to make a difference. A lot of people are going to listen and say, yes, 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 yes. Uh, so Barb, thank you so much for being on the show, dude. Yes. No, I'm happy that I could be here. I can also help connect families with other um, support groups in their areas. If they are looking for that, if they're looking for more local in-person stuff. Okay, beautiful. And we'll make sure everything is up on our show notes at uh, fasdsuccess.com slash podcast you can get all the show notes from this and any other episode we did again barb uh, thanks so much for joining us today thank you i told you she was an amazing lady there's no getting around it uh, and i can now pronounce <laughs> i can't even pronounce it i can now pronounce knack it's just so perfect with the uh, accent with the minnesota accent folks say i have an accent i don't believe them uh i don't think i do Although once in a while I may say A, but we can get into that another time. She's cool. In the midst of a riot, in the midst of, as she says, trauma over trauma over trauma, she still sat down and gave an incredible interview and shared herself and her insights. And that's really awesome. Because here's a couple of things that I'm going to touch base on, uh, but we'll move quickly because I don't want to keep you here all day. The one thing that stood out is Barb thought she knew about FASD, but what she knew was out of date. That's why continued training and education is so important for you. If you have already received training, get some more. You know, uh, my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, a huge part of my life, Donna DeBolt, uh, would say training, 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 training. Once you have training, you need to get more training. And and for a few reasons, right? Because the information is rapidly changing and with organizations like CanFASD doing such a good job at bringing new insights to the disability, uh, we're learning new things and also after you get training, you might go home and make some changes and then everybody around you says that you're crazy and you're not doing the right thing and you should take things away and that you should punish more and then you start to believe them uh, and you go back to the old way of doing business. So absolute training, training, training. And you know, we're going to have a free FASD video training series that we do once a year. It is coming soon. Uh, So be patient. We are actively working on that as we speak. I also like uh, what she says she talked about give she talked about being given a lot of bad advice which made things worse you know when she was talking about how she thought she they were the awesome parents because they were strict and then they ended up taking the actual you know the actual blankie away uh, which you know was not a good uh, thing to do and it did not work and it's One of the things that she said, and I'm sort of quoting from memory here, that the most effective and responsive intervention was uh, that her and her husband's changed the way they responded to her. And, you know, uh, folks who take my online course, caregivers who take the online course with us come to quickly realize that it's uh, change in themselves. Once you change, uh, once you change how you perceive the behaviors, once you change how you respond to the behaviors, your kids change. 
But the problem is, is doing work is hard, right? It is hard and nobody wants to change. We know that people push back from change. But once you're able to do that, uh, things uh, do uh, go a lot smoother. Uh, She wished that when she started out, people talked to them about the brain aspect more, right? Because what happens if you are if you aren't FASD informed, a lot of this behavior slash symptoms are up for interpretation, and that isn't good. And we interpret them as being willful, purposeful, and intentional, when in fact it is the brain. And it is the brain that is not functioning as it could or should or would like to, right? We got to remember that individuals on the spectrum don't want to uh, don't want to cause chaos. They don't want to not be liked and loved and respected and all those other things. The same thing that we like to do. Uh, she said she tried every uh, uh, sticker, every intervention under the sun from sticker chart to moon phases because we were desperate. Take it from Barb. If you have a, a, a if you're new in this journey or if you're struggling in this journey right now, less of those sticker charts and contracts and moon phases because that doesn't work. What works is understanding the brain and changing the environment and creating a good fit. And she also talks about how she was uh, stuck on what she looked like to outsiders what it looked like how they were perceived from other people now that's not a good way to go either because people are going to judge you and that and and that's you know what she says near the end when she was giving some advice that if people aren't judging you or calling you a helicopter parent or an enabler then you're you're not doing it right because raising an individual on the spectrum is different and it causes it, it you need to come at it with a different perspective and you need to come at it with a different train of thought to get different results. So it was, it was pretty powerful stuff. And of course, all this stuff with the meltdowns, I could go, I could literally make this podcast six hours long, but I think she hit the, uh, the nail on the head. Uh, one of the things that you might want to try, you know, is asking your kid what works for them in a meltdown. What do they need? Uh, what, and be prepared to hear some not so nice stuff. Like, you know, Barb heard from the, the adult that she was effing annoying and she was this and that and this, but sometimes to get feedback, we really have to sit and listen so we could be a lot more helpful moving forward. Uh, you know, you given her list. You could check out the list. You could check out the actual word document of her article at fasdsuccess.com/podcast. You just hover over her episode and and click on it, and the notes will be in there. Cool. Uh, this is what it's about: making sure that we're getting information from parents and professionals who have been there and know what's happening so we could cut your learning curve and so we can make sure the placement is stable and that your relationship is loving and that we can see positive outcomes, not only for yourself, but your loved one on the spectrum because everybody deserves that. Everybody deserves that, even you. So having said all that, I wish you nothing but an amazing week, uh, less meltdowns, less chaos, and, and take to heart to some of the stuff that uh, Barb says. She said the biggest thing 
was connecting with other caregivers that helped her get it get through this so if you're listening to this and you're not connected to an online group you can join ours it's free facebook.com slash group slash fasd forever and you can come and i think we're over uh 5600 caregivers uh, so far so you have a lot of wisdom in there and if you're in the group thank you so much i really appreciate it i just appreciate you man you're going through uh doing one of the hardest things on the planet and that's uh raising an individual on the spectrum or you are an individual on the spectrum and you're just trying to make it uh, so do not quit do not stop things can and will get better so until then we'll be back here same time, same bat channel uh, to bring you some more excellent uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder information. Again, I'm your host, Jeff Noble. Thanks. If you listen to this uh, all the way through, you have earned some extra points in my book. So have a great day. Take care. Love you. Bye.